Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Our scripture reading this morning is from the gospel. And it is a gruesome story. It is a story that is more appropriate for Halloween than it is for All Saints Day. And yet in it, I pray that we might be found to to listen to details that might go missed. It's going to require some attention. You're going to see a flashback. You're going to hear about a misunderstanding. You're going to hear about a crime scene. But above all, you're going to hear about how Jesus chooses to respond when he is hurting and when he is grieving. Beginning with chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the ruler heard reports about Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, Herod feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, Herodias said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is in shock. He's grieving. Did you catch it? When Jesus learns about what has happened, he's distraught. And the Bible tells us that he then withdraws from where he heard this He withdraws in a boat to a deserted place by himself. We know that Jesus sought solitude and prayerful silence in his life and in his ministry. It's what's guided our conversation and our time together on Sunday mornings this last month. This whole year we've been exploring how God calls us to walk in the way of peace. And to walk in the way of peace is to walk in the way of the good shepherd, which is why we have the shepherd's crook here on our communion table. Jesus models for us what it looks like to find peace. And how many among us 
Do not ache for peace in this moment. So we look to Jesus. And one of the ways in which he walked in the way of peace is that he practiced solitude and prayerful silence. He did so as a way to tune out the noise from the world and to be more aware of his presence with his father. We know also that he he sought solitude when he faced important decisions. Most notably, we saw last week where he withdrew and practiced solitude and prayerful silence on the eve of his identifying his 12 disciples. We also know that he, he retreated to pray when he was exhausted and stretched thin. These feel like overlooked moments in the gospel, don't they? But they actually serve as hinges between important elements in the life of Jesus' ministry. Jesus retreated, practiced solitude and prayerful silence. And we find that that's what gave him strength to re-engage and hear. In this moment this morning, we see that Jesus seeks solitude and prayerful silence to grieve gentleman by the name of Mark Batterson, he's written a book that suggests that we need to find in our lives a whispering spot. <laughs> I like that. A whispering spot. He acknowledges how those of us of substance have found a whispering spot on our way along life's path. He notes that in 1956, an environmentalist Sigurd Olson, he built a small cabin on the banks of a lake in Minnesota, and like many of us, might name a cabin or a home or even a boat. He named the cabin there on the lake a listening point. He wanted the cabin in that location on that beautiful, pristine lake to be a place where he could hear all that was worth listening to. In a similar way, a woman by the name of Susanna Wesley raised 17 children in her lifetime and finding a whispering spot seemed impossible and yet in her room, in a rocking chair, she found a place of solitude and silence that if she would put a blanket over her in that moment, it became a tent of meeting, reminiscent, of course, of the Old Testament Thomas Edison had a thinking chair. Alexander Graham Bell had a dreaming place that overlooked Grand River. We remember from 10th grade English that Henry David Thoreau skipped stones at Walden Pond. And then there was Ludwig von Beethoven. He sat at his desk until early afternoon and, and then he would take a stroll to reinvigorate his mind he would take pencil and paper with him so that as he walked in quiet and solitude, he would write down the melodies that would come to him. I'm curious, what is, what is your whispering spot? Where is the place where you can hear the things worth listening to? Repeatedly, Jesus' whispering spot was in nature. And a familiar reference comes to mind for me, that of a thin place. You've heard me talk about 
it before. I, I, the Celtic imagination was that place where the membrane between this world and the next was very thin. Jesus found his thin place, his whispering spot to be out in nature, accessible only by boat, up on a mountain, in a garden with his closest followers. We know, of course, that solitude and silence doesn't mean isolation. In fact, some of the most poor Profound and powerful moments of, of solitude is when we gather together as a people of faith in quiet moments, not unlike being around a fire on our front lawn at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, listening for that which is worth hearing, which of course is our stories about the path but also in worship, this moment is set apart where we can practice solitude and silence, not only for discernment, not only to, to be re-energized, but also in moments of grief. Jesus is grieving in our moment in Scripture today because his friend has been murdered. John the Baptist was a relative of his, perhaps a cousin. He was a colleague, one who famously was going before Christ, preparing a way in the wilderness. He's the one featured here. One of the only ones, I might add, that Jesus is pictured side by side with. John was a prophet. He spoke God's truth. He was a messenger for the kingdom of God. And we cannot understate Jesus' relationship with him. And in this moment, we find a curious story. The gist of it begins like the beginning of a TV show that we would stream on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Herod is hearing reports of someone who is doing mighty things in his kingdom he can only imagine that it's John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. And we find ourselves wondering, wait, what? John the Baptist is dead? Yes, we learn. Not only is John the Baptist dead, but he's been murdered, put to death by Herod himself. Yes, Herod had arrested John. He was a rabble-rouser, as prophets are. Prophets speak truth to power. Which is why I might acknowledge and lift up that church is to serve as the prophetic voice to any who stand in power. And John certainly did. And it got him in trouble. He was arrested. But Herod didn't want to take it any further because the people recognized the power of the prophetic voice. <laughs> But there was a terrible party, right? I mean, it was sleazy. And in the midst of it, Herod probably, who had had a few already, <sighs> makes an oath and allows someone to have influence. Because of all kinds of drama that we will not go into, the request is hideous and heinous. Not only does the young lady want John to die, she wants his head on a platter. And he obliges. It's gruesome. 
And John's followers take the body, bury it, and then have the terrible call to let Jesus know what's happened. You've been a part of these calls before, haven't you? Where you've had to convey terrible news. Jesus is the recipient of this message. And how does he respond? (laughs) Not with a Sunday school answer. Not with a text, not with a post, not with a share. No, he withdraws. He withdraws by himself to grieve. In this moment of terror for Jesus and loss, he withdraws by boat to a quiet place. Interestingly, this chain of events culminates in one of Jesus' best remembered moments, unfortunately. (laughs) We carve up scripture, but y'all, this is all one long narrative because Jesus retreats, but the crowd finds him. And when they find him, Jesus sees their need. He cares for them. He teaches them. And they need to be fed. And immediately a light bulb goes off. We remember that this moment seamlessly becomes the great miracle of the feeding of the multitude. Where his disciples look around because apparently Jesus hasn't noticed. And says they need to eat. They're hungry. And do you remember Jesus' response? You give them something to eat. When seen from this vantage point of grief and loss, we begin to see more clearly how Jesus felt in this moment. You give them something to eat. He's exhausted. Jesus is sick with grief over what has happened. And I take comfort, actually, in knowing that Jesus grieves like we do. And that grief takes time. And that Jesus chooses to use that time with God in a whispering spot. In Jesus' response, we see him responding to this moment with shock perhaps even disbelief in what has happened. It's hard for us to to see in this moment that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, but see his humanity in this moment. Imagine hearing about this. We see in this moment sadness and depression and fear. He has to know that this is what will happen when the kingdom of God brushes up against the civil authorities. John has been butchered for being faithful. And we know that Jesus is more aware than ever of what the path is going to lead to for him. And how does he respond? Not with stoicism, but with grief. He is hurting, y'all. He's hurting like each of us do when we get this kind of news. 
We also can imagine anger. That he may have been faced with the temptation to call down fire from heaven. Remember James and John? When Jesus was mistreated, he says, give the order, Jesus, and we'll call down lightning from heaven to consume the enemies. You know that Jesus must have been tempted with that. He was tempted before. Worldly powers. Waging and tiptoeing into politics. We know that from when Jesus had solitude and silence with the tempter. We know this. And we can see also the stage of bargaining, perhaps, wondering if there's something that Jesus could have done. Perhaps he should have intervened. Perhaps they should have partnered up together on the path. Perhaps Jesus could intervene now. This is what Jesus was dealing with in this moment. The moment was so great that his response faithfully was to practice solitude and silence in the midst of it. And here's the connection for us, y'all. Here's where this moment in Scripture becomes a place of intersection in our own lives, in our own path. It's this. We, too, know grief. We have grieved much in this past year. Yes, we have grieved the loss of loved ones to death, but also to estrangement, the loss of friendships, the loss of our church family that we're not able to see as frequently as we wish. In my worst moments, I cannot help but to acknowledge that we've experienced a church split. Some of us are here and some of us have split. We grieve the loss of community at work, in your neighborhoods, in your families. We've, we're grieving the loss of, of plans that we made, the, the rhythms and the continuity that we enjoyed. We're grieving the loss of jobs and careers and vocations of opportunities that we thought were possible. We are grieving tragedies and injustices and, and the loss of what might have been. We're grieving the loss of institutions that we trusted and the certainty that they seem to provide to us. We grieve peace of mind. But we know this also. We do not grieve alone. Jesus grieves with and alongside us, just as he grieved with others as he walked the path himself. Jesus knows grief, and he sits with us in our own whispering spots so that we can hear God whisper to us. Jesus finds refuge and peace and solitude and prayerful silence. And Jesus presses on. Grief is not a destination for Christ. And grief is not a destination for us. Yes, it is a place on the path. And it cannot be avoided. 
It must be weathered. It must be endured. And Jesus gives us the wherewithal to do just that. And because Jesus presses on, because he chooses to re-engage out of grief and in his grief, we learn of his love. We learn of his service. And we see that God does not allow grief to win the day. Which is why in moments of grief and at funerals, we read these words from the Revelation of John. Familiar words. Words that become true because Jesus was willing to re-engage in the midst of his grief. They're familiar words, but they are appropriate now. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This becomes the foundation for the way forward through and out of grief because Jesus presses on and we should too. I know this to be true even when I don't feel it. And I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that in this past year I haven't felt like wanting to press on. But because Jesus pressed on through grief, I believe in my better Christ-like moments that I can too. Jesus re-engages in the midst of his grief and beyond it because his work is not done. If you look closely at the text and the broader narrative in the midst of his grief and the practice of solitude, is this, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. Jesus chooses to re-engage because that was his calling and that when Jesus' eyes are open, he is able to see pain and chooses to meet us there because in being present with others, God's power is realized. God's redemptive work becomes incarnate. Y'all finding this peace in the midst of our anguish does not just happen. If you're eager to feel and to sense this peace that only God can give us in Christ Jesus, I encourage and implore you to find now that whispering spot. Yes, the place in which you sit is that moment. But there are other places in your backyards and on the Blue Ridge Parkway and on family land and along the path 
where God is whispering your name. Find it. For in doing so, we will all be changed. Amen. In that same spirit, we recognize that today is All Saints Day, a day that for many of us may not be a day of familiarity. And yet it has been practiced for centuries in the church universal, for it is a moment to acknowledge that all those in Christ Jesus who have gone on before us into God's eternal love and presence, they are saints. They are a cloud of witnesses that our remembrance of them gives us strength. We remember that we are a people of remembrance, that on the table in front of you we see that we are called to remember Christ Jesus, his brokenness, his grief, his power, and his resurrection. We also acknowledge the color of the white of resurrection on the stole here before us, unique to this day, because it is an inbreaking of God's light in the midst of darkness. So it is appropriate for us to pause and to remember those among us who are now at home forever with God we rejoice knowing that for them, they knew that Christ was the way, the truth, and the life, and that they took Jesus' hand when Jesus came for them to take them to the place that he had prepared for them and for us. We will name now our church members who have died since last All Saints Day. And I'd like to invite the families, and the friends of those whose names will be mentioned to stand when their names are called, to remain standing until a bell is tolled. Let us remember these saints from First Baptist Church who have gone on before us. This morning, we remember Barbara Corbin. This morning, we remember Lois Bunn. This morning, we remember Joyce Lovin. This morning, we remember Jim Culp. We invite you now to stand and to state the name of someone in your own life whom you have lost to death this past year. And as you do so, Remain standing until a bell is tolled.
may be seated. Let us pray. Eternal Spirit, before whom the generations rise and pass away, even in the presence of death, our first words to you are in praise for your unnumbered mercies. We praise you, O God, for the memory of loved ones now departed, for their victories of character over trial, of courage over difficulty, of faith over sorrow. We give you thanks. For those who have done justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with their God, we sing joyfully to you. Grant us now this same joyful thanksgiving as we remember our friends and family members and give to us that sure knowledge that you have won the victory over death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.